Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody. It is Devin Katayama, and uh, today... We have something special for you. You've probably noticed that on the Bay, we like to tell you stories about what it means to live in the Bay Area, the conversations of the people that make up the place that we call home. That means that we're often focusing on people doing extraordinary things. So today we want to share with you one of these stories about a Filipino man who moved to San Francisco and became one of the leading AIDS activists in his community. It's from this really cool podcast that you should subscribe to, all about the Filipino diaspora. It's called Long Distance, and here's the show. You're listening to Long Distance. I'm Paula Mardo. Okay, uh, are we on? Hi, my name is Jaime Giaga. I'm in my golden years, technically. In 65 is when I'm 11 years old, when we come over to join my dad. He was working as a mechanical engineer for Parsons, which is an architectural firm in Pasadena. He petitioned us to come, and so we left Manila December 20, 1964. So we landed in Hawaii January 1st, 65. So we were truly fresh off the boat, FOB. <laughs> After that, it was a different kind of FOB. It was fresh off the Boeing. <laughs> It's my plane. (laughs) Jaime Giaga is deeply rooted in the Filipino community of Los Angeles, home to his family and the largest population of Filipinos outside of the Philippines. His sister, Jocelyn, is a longtime resident of the historic Filipino town neighborhood, where there is a sign at the corner of Temple and Alvarado Streets honoring their mother, fearless Filipino-American community leader, Remedios Remy Giaga. Like, literally, that's what the sign says. Fearless Filipino-American community leader. So, growing up, Jaime joined Filipino youth groups and became a leader in the anti-martial law movement of the 1970s. But one thing he never got to explore or even talk about with his activist friends or family was his identity and sexuality as a gay man. 
Can I ask you, when did you know or realize that you were gay? Probably when I was maybe six, seven years old. you tell anybody? No. By his late 20s, he was ready to make a change. He realized he devoted so much of his life to community, he hadn't really made time for himself. So in 1981, he moved to San Francisco. One of the epicenter for people who thought they were gay and it was okay, it was celebrated. A lot of other people were coming out at the same time, and I did too. It was time for me to explore my newly found identity. That same year, news of a mysterious illness affecting mostly gay men started to come around. It was later known as HIV, in its advanced stage, AIDS. It was around then that Jaime tested positive for HIV. I was scared. Not too much was still known about HIV. And when he learned that, among Asian men in San Francisco, Filipinos were some of the most affected by HIV and AIDS, he felt that he had to do something for them and for himself. On this episode, a story of exploration, identity, sexuality, of community, family, and spirituality, of coming to terms with life and death. This is Jaime's story, so he's going to do most of the talking. Oh, and just a little warning here. This episode contains discussion of sex and death. It might be unsuitable for younger listeners. In 81, that's when I moved to San Francisco. It was time for me to explore my newly found identity. I don't think I was unique in that sense. It was a phenomenon going on. It was not until I actually moved to San Francisco did I realize that there was a community there. It was just a burgeoning community among Asian gay men. It was new. We were all coming out, exploring our sexuality, participating in the open sex culture, the resorts over the weekend, the club scene. We would figure out, should we do South of Market tonight or the Castro or the Tenderloin area? Castro would be what we call the SM standing and modeling crowd. What is the standing and modeling crowd? <laughs> standing and modeling in your 501 DVI jeans, maybe a tank top. Everybody had a mustache. Then there's the Tenderloin area. There's a little bit more. I would just say raunchy, <laughs> anything goes. <laughs> and then there's a lot of Asian bars. Another venue was South of Market. The leather bars were there. You know, if you wanted to do the leather scene, you would go there in some leather piece of clothing, like leather vest, boots, your harness, chaps. And if you wanted to go as a couple, one could be slave, one could be master. Oh, the word cruising, that was a very popular term. So it's this 
flirtatious dance that you do with people that you thought was cute and at some point you would more likely than not have a sexual encounter. When the bars closed at 2 a.m., everybody poured out on the street. It would hang out on the street for another hour or so until everybody realized they had to go to sleep and be at work at 8. Were this weekends, weeknights? Seven days a week. While Jaime explored his new identity, he got accepted into a physician assistant program at Stanford University in Palo Alto about 40 minutes south of San Francisco, without traffic. After years of working as an activist, he saw a future for himself in the medical field. So he needed to live in a place that was central to his school and to his life in San Francisco. Jaime rented a room in a house with Gary Rhodes, an artist who worked in telecommunications. We met at the Badlands Bar on Castro on 18th Street. It was a Western cowboy Levi bar. He had an extra room, so I rented we were just roommates, and then we became boyfriends, and we had our own uh, agreement about our relationship, uh, you know, because we had an open relationship. What that meant, being gay in the 80s when <laughs> the castro. in the middle of the quote-unquote gay mecca. The candy store. Candy store, and so you had sex with anybody <laughs> and everybody. <laughs> so you guys had this agreement? Yeah. yeah, that we couldn't bring anybody home to our house. We could go out with other people, but couldn't bring them home. Because we would go out with our friends. That was part of the culture. But we would all come home together. If you wanted to go out and meet somebody else, then you'd do that after we got home. <laughs> that worked for us during that period. Over the years, we developed a stronger emotional bond. And that's what kept us together. And then also when I found out just the struggle I went through. Federal health officials consider it an epidemic, yet you rarely hear a thing about it. It's a disease first detected in the gay community that has now spread beyond that. A disease experts are now calling a national epidemic. And yet most of the country doesn't know about this cancer. Why? Well, I think it's because it's a gay cancer. It appeared a year ago in New York's gay community, then in the gay communities in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Now it's been detected in Haitian refugees and in heavy drug users and in some people with hemophilia. No one knows why. It's called GRID. Gay-related immunodeficiency, GRID. Probably 82, 83, started to see articles of it in the Bay Area Reporter, The Bar, which is a newspaper specifically for the gay community about this mysterious disease affecting gay men. I remember reading the KS lesions being reported, not the pneumonia yet, but KS, Kaposi sarcoma. It's a skin lesion. So that's one of the first articles that I remember reading. And so when you read this, what was your reaction? Uh, scary. Before we keep going, 
I want to let you know that before Jaime even moved to San Francisco, he was recruited to take part in a medical study in LA, in which he provided some blood samples. He remained part of the study when he moved to San Francisco. In 1983, he was contacted by that same study, and they asked if they could test his blood for something else. This virus affecting mostly gay men. They didn't have a name for it yet. It would later be known as the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, HIV, an infection of the immune system that can lead to Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS. But at that time, doctors were still trying to figure all of this out. As a medical student who was part of what he calls a high-risk group for HIV, Jaime wanted to help. He agreed to testing his blood samples, then waited for the results. They called me back in maybe 84 spring and said, yeah, we took some of your blood samples. And as of 83, your blood sample was still negative for the HIV test. But by the spring of 84, it was positive. So I know exactly when I seroconverted or when I got infected. It was the latter part of 83, beginning part of 84. I was scared. Not too much was still known about HIV. And when finally the test was FDA approved, which is 85, Gary and I went and did the test. I came out positive, as I was told earlier, and Gary was negative. It didn't drastically change my behavior and our relationship. I think we were just more informed. We were more careful. Rock Hudson being already at his last stages becomes big news. A lot of our friends were starting to come down with, you know, symptoms. When Jaime graduated from the Stanford PA program, he got a job at the San Francisco Men's Health Study, an epidemiological study of the history and prevalence of HIV and AIDS in a selection of about a thousand men living in a part of the city where the AIDS epidemic was most severe. Twice a year, these men would come in to answer questions and take physical exams and blood tests with physician assistants like Jaime. He learned about HIV and AIDS on the ground and got access to information before most people did because he read CDC reports, took part in research, went to conferences. I didn't have any symptoms. I was monitoring my T-cell count. It was still in the high 800s. T-cells, or CD4 cells, are white blood cells that fight infection in the immune system. HIV attacks T-cells, so low T-cell count means greater risk for infections. A range of 500 to 1,500 T-cells is normal. When it drops below 200, a person is diagnosed with AIDS. Jaime got regular blood tests to monitor his T-cell count and viral load, which shows how much of the HIV virus is in your body. He felt that the more information he had, the more he could cope with what was happening to him. Here's Jaime's dad. Here's Gary again, looking at old photos from that time with Jaime. And this is me, my mom, our friends Charlie, Joey, and Doug, and they're all, they all died of AIDS. Oh, really? Yep, they're all gone. Do you guys know roughly how many friends you've lost to AIDS? A lot. Probably a dozen. These are close friends. Yeah, and old boyfriends too. I lost about six or seven old boyfriends. Wow.
I guess I tried to approach it as calmly. Well, I mean, I had my moments. But I tried to be a reasonable person. I guess that's the training you get when you go to school. You can react to it, your emotions, your feelings. But then let's get down. Let's use the mind to figure out what's going on here. And the important thing that I came up with is that, you know, I have this information. A lot of people need this same information. You know, I can't be the only recipient of very valuable information as well as recipient of misinformation that was all over the place. What kinds of misinformation? All you're going to get at when somebody sneezes on you, don't touch the same doorknob. God has deemed it so. You should go to church more. That's part of being gay. So I got all of that from a lot of the other AIDS activists who were pushing back on a lot of that misinformation. And I had to understand why why are they so passionate about you know the activism, which I slowly came to myself. It's unclear exactly when, but Jaime says that at one point, it somehow became known that among Asian Americans, Filipino men were some of the most affected by HIV and AIDS. I found a 1988 study conducted by the AIDS office in the Department of Public Health of San Francisco that showed that, among people of Asian and Pacific Islander ancestry, the incidence of AIDS was highest among Polynesians, Japanese, and Filipinos. And Filipinos made up one of the largest Asian groups in the San Francisco Bay Area. I felt this responsibility. This is information that the Filipino community needs to know, and primarily Filipino MSNs, Filipino men who have sex with men. There are people who engage in these behaviors who don't identify as gay. And then for me, focusing on the Filipino community, the language and cultural specificity of the community also had to be addressed. We had to overcome the community reaction of fear, shame, stigma, all of that. Drawing from his experiences as a physician assistant and activist, Jaime founded the Filipino Task Force on AIDS, a group dedicated to ending the risk of HIV and AIDS in the Filipino community. One of my program managers came up with the notion of tambayan. Hang out, yeah. It's a Tagalog word just to hang around. Tambayan, to stand by, (laughs) hang around. So it'd be a support group. We had it in our office, one of our community rooms. And people would invite friends. We would have uh, food, snacks. We would have some presentations about, you know, HIV AIDS. How do you protect yourself? How do you not get it? How do you get it? We already had the HIV test kit, which would be done anonymously. And people who wanted to take that step further, they could go through counseling. And it would take two weeks. We didn't ask the way it is now. How do you identify? (laughs) Then you have these categories, gay, bi, straight, leaning, questioning, you know, all of that. It's just, if you're Filipino and you want to know about HIV AIDS, you're welcome.
The Filipino Task Force on AIDS provided a safe space for the community to talk and learn about HIV and AIDS. They even got grant funding to build bus shelters with HIV AIDS information in Tagalog. And Jaime started making a name for himself as a gay activist and leader in the city. Still, he chose to keep his HIV-positive status private. Disclosure was even being debated publicly. And a lot of the AIDS activists at that time were calling for, you know, disclosure is something very personal and that has to be safeguarded. Well, when I was doing this work in the late 80s, I was still working with the men's health study. I didn't disclose my status. And when I was doing the Filipino task force and AIDS, I didn't disclose my status either. I just put a Filipino face who would talk about it publicly. Jaime was in newspapers, on TV, at local events. His brother's then-wife, who was living in the Bay Area, had seen an article or something about him and put two and two together. She calls me up and says, Jaime, have you told the family yet that you're HIV positive? (laughs) I said, no. I see your name all over there. (laughs) I didn't ask her where. (laughs) Don't you think you should tell them? I said, yeah, no, you're right. I really need to tell them. And when Gary and I go back to L.A. for Thanksgiving, I'll let him know. Jaime's family knew he was gay. Or, well, they never really talked about it. For his graduation from the Stanford PA program, his family stayed with him and Gary. There was no pressure for me to mention it. I guess when they came up, that's when I said, well, you know, Gary and I are roommates. Jaime's mother and sister figured it out. They were very accepting of Gary. But to tell them he was gay was one thing. To tell them he was HIV positive was something else entirely. How would his family react? What would they say? Would they be worried? Would they accept him? That's after the break. never had to talk about sex, sexuality, any of that with his family. It's that typical Filipino family thing of just sweeping things under the rug. So he didn't tell them he was HIV positive either. But on one trip to Los Angeles for Thanksgiving, he decided he finally would. And he thought the best way to do it was to talk to his sister, Jocelyn. I called my sister, Jocelyn, and said, you know, you want to have some tea at the... uh trying to remember the name. It's now the Southwest Law School, but it was this she-she department store where you have high tea on the fourth floor. It's Gary, myself, and Jocelyn. So we meet and we're having tea and cakes, the small sandwiches, you know, that comes with it. And it's on this tiered center platter. So she probably thought these two gay guys (laughs) want to take me out to high tea. Anyway, as we end that, I said, you know, I have something to tell you. And I proceeded by saying, uh, you know, I'm HIV positive. And she started to break down and cry and gets very emotional about it. But she, you know, comes to again and she asks me, I think, are you okay? Or is everything okay? Because she looked fine. I'm okay. 
And then I said, can you share this with the rest of the family when we leave? She said, oh, okay. Right after that, we go visit my older brother, Jorge. We're knocking on the door. He opens the door. He said, I hear you have HIV. <laughs> there goes this thing about waiting till we go back. <laughs> and then the next day when we have our Thanksgiving dinner, my mom pulls me aside. You know, are you okay? And I, and I, I hear you're HIV positive. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. And she kind of just said, I figured you are or you know what to do because you're in the field. So everybody was accepting and reassuring. Once I disclosed that, that was like another heavy burden off my shoulder. Back in San Francisco, Jaime continued to be active in the community. He was invited to attend the first ever White House Conference on HIV AIDS. This was in 1995. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, just the year before, AIDS became the leading cause of death for all Americans aged 25 to 44. All this time, Jaime's condition deteriorated. His T-cell count went way down, and he was diagnosed with AIDS. He went on disability, started experimental treatments, and experienced major side effects but he still flew to Washington, D.C. with Gary to attend the conference. In their hotel room, the night before the first day, I collapse in the bathroom. <laughs> Gary hears this big thud, and he says I was foaming at the mouth. <laughs> he you know, picks me up in the bed, and uh, he felt my was really hot, sweaty. Long story short is I decide we fly back to San Francisco the next morning so I, I don't go to the meeting. So this is already the disease taking its toll on my body. That whole year, I have all these opportunistic infections. Which don't usually affect healthy people. But when you have AIDS and your immune system is compromised, they can be life-threatening. You know, I was getting weak. I was losing weight. That symptom of not being able to breathe. When you have pneumonia and you're short of breath, it's like, I can't breathe. And As his disease progressed, Jaime remembered something he witnessed when he was still in PA school, working a side job at a hospital. A mother with her son, who was a patient. The mother comes out crying, 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 crying. So I tried to find out what was going on. She had just flown in from the East Coast to find her son dying from AIDS. So that was a shock to her. And not only that, but to find out that he was gay. So that was so painful for me to witness. I finally realized I was going to die. Came to my mind and said, I don't want to die the same way I witnessed that patient with all that anguish. I need to be able to go much better than that and more in peace. So that's when I had to draw back from my growing up as a Catholic. Jaime was a non-practicing Catholic, but he found comfort in some of the rituals like communion, singing, the smell of incense. When I asked him if the church's stance against homosexuality bothered him, he said he didn't like the dogma, but he loved the rituals. He was facing death and was trying to find ways to accept it. So he turned to all kinds of faiths and practices for some direction. 
I do yoga, I do meditation, I learn more about Buddhism, I go to all these uh, talks, workshops, and so I'm able to then accept my mortality because spirituality gives me immortality. It's my cafeteria-style spirituality. <laughs> a year later, Jaime gets another bout of pneumocystis pneumonia, then CMV, a viral infection that can blind AIDS patients. His T-cell count goes way down. By the time it's zero, my virus particles is in the millions. And I've emotionally and mentally have come to terms with my, you know, I'm going to be gone in three months. And that's when I decided, now I want to move back to L.A. Jaime moved in with his parents in their home in historic Filipino town. Gary moved with him. It was bittersweet. Jaime was glad to be with his parents, his partner, closer to his siblings, where he grew up. But at the same time, he was preparing for the end. Jaime and Gary gave an interview to the San Francisco Examiner that year, where Gary was described as Jaime's, quote, nurse's aide, chauffeur, chef, grocery shopper, and constant worrier. Jaime talked about feeling at peace after a Buddhist therapist told him dying is a part of life. He and Gary even bought an urn for his ashes, a carved wooden pot from the Philippines. Jaime said he wanted some of his ashes spread in San Francisco. The rest would go to his family. He said, quote, Once you face death, it's not that bad. It makes you peaceful. Jaime was at peace. And ready? And then? The next month, the cocktail comes out. The highly active retroviral therapy. It's combination therapy because all before this was always monotherapy. It was either AZT by itself or protease inhibitor. But finally, the research has said, let's just have a combination. So it's combination therapy. And within a month, people were starting to come out of hospitals. We moved down in May. I started the cocktail in June. I went the following month to do my blood tests. My T-cell count was still zero, and that takes years for the immune system to recover. But the antiviral combination was very effective. I had millions of copies of virus particles. After starting the cocktail, it was down to non-detectable. This meant Jaime could live another day, or week, or months, even years. Not everyone who took the cocktail met the same fate. And he felt fortunate he was able to find something that worked for him. Of course, he still had to deal with side effects, and he had to go through multiple surgeries in one of his eyes because he'd been losing his eyesight. But now, Jaime was going to live. Jaime and Gary bought a home in Los Angeles, not too far from Jaime's parents. And that's where they've lived for the last 23 years. It's actually an inn, too, and it's really cozy. Now, in the early days of this cocktail combination therapy, Jaime had to take 10 to 12 pills a day, with tons of side effects. Last December, he finally switched to two pills a day. The result? I feel so much better. I have a totally new lease on life without side effects. <laughs> and I'm so much more active in the community. I've taken on all these new projects and <laughs> podcasts. Yeah, 
I met Jaime at one of those projects, a community event he holds at the local Echo Park Library, the Carlos Bulosan Book Club, which features talks with Filipino authors. And his podcast is the Carlos Bulosan Book Club podcast, which features those talks. It's a great resource, and it's just one example of the many ways Jaime's reconnected with his community in his hometown. Because after all these years, he still feels the need to help others. I ask him if there's something he's learned for himself through all of this. Yes, I think it's a further development, growth of my spirituality. And I think at the core of that is my own self-awareness. And I feel that that's really helped ground me. That's what I've been doing the last 20 years while enjoying life, pursuing other interests. And even though I'm not a spring chicken (laughs) and don't have the idealism and energy that I had in my youth to be active, I still am. I feel I'm still an activist in the sense that I support fighting for social justice, our planet and the Filipino community. This episode was written, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Paula Mardo. Long Distance is produced by Patrick Apino and me. You can learn more about this story in the show notes on our website, longdistanceradio.com. You've got photos and links to materials used in the making of this episode, including resources and additional information about HIV and AIDS. Plus, you can watch a special episode on Jaime's life in San Francisco on Long Distance TV, the documentary video series for this podcast, directed by Patrick Apino. Sup? This season of Long Distance is produced with support from PRX and the Google Podcasts Creator Program. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Theme song is by Sea Light and the Prisms. Special thanks to Tammy Suzuki, Susan Goldstein, Marcus Hubbard, Eric Watt, Renee Gross, Alyssa Jong Perry, Michael Aquino, Donya Ramos, Tezra Wilkins, H.P. Mendoza, Karina Liu, Riley Manlapas, Chelsea Abbott, and Henry Epino. That's it for this episode of Long Distance. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. 